You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. You did this. Please. She didn't do this, Eric. You did. Us turning on each other. It's what they want. I tried to warn you, Charles. I want you by my side. We're brothers, you and I. All of us together, protecting each other. We want the same thing. Oh, my friend. I'm sorry. But we do not. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, a Trek FM's general geek show coming at you from balmy Cuba. I've got to say the beaches are fine and the cigars are fantastic and there sure is a lot of submarine wreckage here on this beach. But uh, I'm joined by none other than Sean Eastridge. Matt, it is a pleasure to be here. The submarine wreckage, you know... I wasn't really feeling it before, but I think it adds some nice conflict to what could otherwise just be kind of a dull scenic view. Who wants that when you can I have know. explosions, missile crises, 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 whatever, all of the above. But uh, I'm I'm very happy to be here. Well, you know, as long as the rum keeps flowing, I think we'll be fine. And <laughs> <I> so, <agree>. but <laughs> but uh, we're going to be talking about uh, X Men First Class. We have skipped a few X-Men. We'll talk about that. But before we Wait, we're not in... talking about X-Men 3? No, Wh- you what? watched the wrong one. Oh, no. Why would I do Man, that to myself? I don't know. I don't it know. It hurts in um, so many ways. It it, it Yeah, it's, it's not even that it hurts so good. It just hurts. <laughs> so... <laughs> But you can find us all over the place. We're on iTunes at uh, iTunes.com slash TrekFM. Make sure you check out the 602 Club there, as well as all the other TrekFM shows. And while you're there, do give us a star rating and review. Let people know what you think of the show and help them find the show with your star rating and review. You can follow us uh, and like us all over the place. So follow us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can uh, find our listeners-only discussion group on Facebook, which is called the Babel Conference. And if you type Babel into the search field on Facebook, that'll bring you over there. Or uh, maybe you're on the website at Trek.FM and uh, you're just perusing around. If you hit discussion on any of those mini bars you've got on our show pages, it'll bring you over there as well. And you can talk to all the different people around the world talking about Track FM shows. Uh, and last but not least, maybe you want to write an email. Um, it's been a while since we've gotten one. So go to trekfm.contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club. That email will come to me and then any of the hosts that are on that week and we'll get the opportunity to converse with you that way. But as I mentioned, 
we are going to be talking about X-Men First Class, and we did skip some mutant history we did. with, <laughs> with X-Men 3 and Wolverine Origins, which, you know, um, it's interesting because both of those movies are... Um, they're not very good films. No, I would go so far as to say they're terrible films. Um, X-Men 3, I will just go out on a limb and say this. Uh, obviously not the worst film ever made, but I think I may hate X-Men 3 more than any film I've seen ever. And a lot of it is... Uh, being a film fan and really admiring what Brian Singer did with X-Men 1 and 2 and how carefully he kind of layered the complexities of the characters, the subtext, the social commentary, very well shot. Uh, X-Men 3 is none of that. It is, it's a kind of a rushed hack job. And I think I was so upset by it that it just kind of latched on as a, such a negative experience that to this day, I consider it my least favorite film. <laughs> And, and you want to? Do you want to know something that will probably make you throw up in your mouth just a little bit? I mean, I it's it's like a love hate thing, but yes, I would love to to okay. hear this. Yeah. So, um, X Men: Last Stand and Wolverine Origins both made more money at the theater than this movie, Ugh. First Class. Ugh. So, First Class, just, just just so everybody uh, has an idea. Uh, adjusted for inflation, so we're, uh, we're, we'll go there. Um, made one hundred and sixty-eight million dollars first class. Uh, Wolverine Origins is the next film, and that made two hundred twenty-three over two hundred twenty-three million. Uh, and then Last Stand, adjusted for inflation, is actually the highest grossing, second highest grossing X Men film ever, which is <laughs> three hundred and thirty-one over three hundred thirty-one million. So. Um, uh, the box office didn't agree with us, but you know, no. I, I think, I think to be fair, I think X Men Three was riding the wave that X Men Two provided. I, I think oh, your general absolutely. moviegoer is not going to know the difference between Brian Singer and Brett Ratner until it's mm -hmm. too late. That's, um, and that's I think everyone was like, happened. "Oh, it's exactly." I think everyone was like, "Oh, the Phoenix movie, it's going to be great. The X, X Men Two was so good. This one's got to be." Great. I think a lot of that had to do with that but um well and and yeah. you know um everybody's favorite character is wolverine so wolverine origins exactly. is something we all want to see right uh it until was... we see it and then <laughs> we we're like oh you know <laughs> um and then what's interesting is that there's this this whole process of what they're going to try and do next and and actually the film that was going to come out after those two um and and kind of hinged a little bit on wolverine origins success was they were actually going to do uh, a Magneto film. That's right. I totally forgot about that because, like you said, yeah, completely, they went in a completely different direction. But I remember there were talks of, like, it was going to be a whole, it was all going to be origin movies and mm -hmm. we're going to do prequels for everything. Wow, yeah, I forgot about that. Well, and it was all about him um, surviving Auschwitz and everything, and David Goyer was going to direct, you know, which, you know, David Goyer Interesting. is some great stuff, you know, and um, obviously he would have a, a you know, a, a very close heart for that kind of source material as well. Sure. Um, and so, you know, could have been really great, but... Um, 
that never happened. You know, part of that was also the writer strike that happened. So a lot of things went by the wayside, and they ended up wrapping up some of their ideas for uh, the Magneto movie into First Class and creating this. Um, you know, at the time, it was going to be basically a reboot. Yeah. And so I, I just wanted to ask you, you just, you know, coming out of that, when they announced First Class, if you can remember, what did you think about this idea of, you know, we're going to we're going to go back in time and basically tell the origin story of all of these X-Men that we've known. And, and we're also going to recast like which, you know, is huge when you already yeah. are in love with, you know, Patrick Stewart as Professor X. I remember when they announced it feeling almost a sense of relief because they announced very early on that Brian Singer was going to be involved in some capacity. Even if he wasn't a director, they were like, he's involved with story, he's going to produce it, whatever. I was like, okay, if Singer's involved, I feel like I can rest assured that it'll be better than X-Men The Last Stand and uh, Origins. And then when they announced Matthew Vaughn, I think... I, I, I can't remember. I'd, I mean, I'd seen Lair Cake and then Kick-Ass, I think, had just come out. Yeah, so I long, uh, long before that. Yeah. yeah, and I'm not a huge fan of Kick-Ass, but I thought it had style. I thought it was fun. So I knew, I was like, well, Matthew Vaughn, that's a solid choice for an X-Men movie. So I was very, I was like, oh, well, maybe this will get things back on track. I, I don't remember if I was wild about the, uh, the prequel idea, but I was kind of like, ah, you know... Set it in the '60s. That's kind of cool. So I was I was excited because it seemed like there were a lot of creative elements mm-hmm. falling into place that I could get behind and that I could feel like, okay, maybe we're gonna get things back on track with this. Yeah, and and I thought, you know, I remember at this point, uh, you know, I was really paying attention to like the behind the scenes stuff that was going on, you know, and obviously had been quite let down by. Uh, the last two X-Men movies that they had put out, like, big time. And so the thought process of them, you know, kind of revamping and reorganizing into, you know, the first galactic... No, not empire, but uh, <laughs> the, the first mutant empire, you know, um, is is was a good idea to me. And, and two, you know, I mean, the idea of going back and kind of seeing the origins of how Charles and Eric end up uh, on different sides yeah Um, that was exciting yeah so um and i you know i think that's the thing that ends up working the best in the movie i I just you know re-watching it for i i would say to me the thing that really stood out the most was the story of those two guys and the way that they end up on opposite sides of the spectrum and uh, you know, plus you you cast some amazing people, and it it just this creates a mutant history to where I'm after the movie. I'm excited then to okay, where do we go next? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think uh, McAvoy and Fassbender is inspired casting, and they really, really make this movie. Uh, I think First Class is teetering on the edge of being good and being kind of meh and what really keeps it on the edge of the line that favors being good is their performances as far as I'm concerned and 
a lot of their scenes together, their moments together are, I think, the highlights of the film. And uh, it, it was it was tough because I think X-Men First Class is a movie that tries to do a lot in one movie. It felt like they were rushing at points because they were not Matt rushing, just rushing. And <laughs> they were just trying to get like, we need to have this and we need to make sure that he gets paralyzed and we need to make sure that mm-hmm. they're enemies now. So I, I almost was wishing and then when we get to days of future past i know we're not talking about that but it feels like they kind of took a few steps back and tried to put them back in some other places they kind of retconned a little bit of this movie but it felt like their relationship got a little too rushed and i wanted more of it i wanted it to breathe a little bit before we got to the end where he's like okay now i'm i'm evil now and everything uh we are now enemies it was it was a little like oh but I want more. I want I want to see this development. I want you know, you can let it breathe, let it play out over a couple movies. I think maybe part of it was they weren't sure if they were going to get to do more of them. So they were like, let's just wrap it up so we can have it tie right into the first X-Men if it needs to. Yep. Well, and I mean, you know, I, I look at the box office receipts here and you're definitely wondering if you're going to get any more mutant history. I think when yeah. you see that this doesn't do amazing at the box office i mean worldwide it makes 353 million so that's not bad but i mean it's 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 definitely not where the x-men franchise was with say x2 and x3 which i think they were maybe hoping for and i think i mean you you also add consider the budget which was it says 140 to 160 million you multiply that by 2 to consider marketing costs and you're looking at a film that only made maybe a 30 to 50 million dollar profit it may have even just broken even and it's funny cuz right. the wikipedia page says oh it was a box office success but was it it doesn't look like it was so to your point it i'm amazed that we got days of future past, but also not surprised that it it ended up saying, let's combine the old with the new, put Wolverine in there, <laughs> let's get this together. Well, it does seem like, you know, it's a box office success in the sense that it, it's well-received, you know, it gets good reviews, um, and I think you are kind of left, you know, wanting more, and I think the studio maybe senses that, um, even if the box office isn't as big as it could be, um, but mm. I mean, in the end, you know, this is not. I just to put it in perspective, this is not a bad performance. You know, uh, most films don't make a billion dollars, so if you're making, you know, three hundred and fifty million dollars, it's a good deal. Plus, you have to, you know, you put in all of the costs, uh, all of the uh, earnings you get when you put it on a home release too. Mm. You know, studios keep breaking in money for years with that kind of stuff. So, you know, True. I think. I think um, what they did is they create a foundation here to which they can build off of. And a part of that is, uh, we mentioned just a second ago, was the new cast. And I think, you know, uh, James McAvoy, my first time of seeing him, uh, was all the way back with Narnia, who plays Mr. Tumnus. Oh, yeah, Mr. Uh, Tumnus. He's, yeah, he's so great in that role. And, and he just continues to build and build. But I, I felt like he, uh, the way that, that, Vaughn uh, and the writer here create this arc for him of kind of being this a little bit too naive, you know, very yeah. hip 60s dude who really loves his powers because they help him get chicks, you know, <laughs> into 
more of what we see, you know, what we know of Professor X. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think it's a really it's a really nice job, you know, it, it, and and w- without McAvoy as Professor X, I definitely think this movie would not be half of what it is because he really does draw you in. I totally agree. He is I love it humanizes him because Professor yes, X yes. we've seen him as the stoic teacher who can do no wrong very wise so to see him kind of in this sort of like you know youthful kind of very energetic very uh it's it's just a fun character and you get to see him develop i think one of my favorite sequences in the film is watching him uh, the montage where he's teaching the kids how to hone their Mm -hmm. powers and just him being in his element like that and mcavoy really sells it I, i mean a lot of this a lot of the the dialogue in this film is is a little cheesy and it's a little stilted at times but he there's not a single moment i don't believe him and he does such a great job making every line work and making the character work completely and you kind of really latch on to him right from the get-go and it makes it very easy to enjoy the film and to really buy into this character and his relationships with everybody yeah no i agree um and i think you're right you know this movie in some ways reminds me of you know the 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 star wars films in the sense that you know a good actor can make the not the best dialogue really work and mm. so you know whether it's the prequels and and you know uh you mcgregor just stealing the show uh with his his delivery of the lines or you know the original trilogy where you know carrie fisher and Mark Hamill and mm. and uh, Harrison Ford are able to make something of the uh, of the dialogue that may not be the best unless it's in somebody's hands that does something with it. Um, I think that both him and you know Michael Fassbender really do something with this film, and they make it their own. And and like you said, it's those moments when they're together, like you know the moment where they're training and he's he's tapping into his mind, and they they relive yeah. the moment. Um, uh, of um, Sabbath with him and his mother uh, and Eric is crying and then you look at Charles and he's crying and it's just like it's such a well done scene and in mm. any other hands it could be super cheese but they yeah. make you feel the emotion of what's happening and because they're such good actors yeah the sincerity is there and you I mean that's that is easily one of my favorite moments in the film because you feel that emotion so deeply and they're chemistry is so good but it's a really beautiful moment i i wanted more of those moments in this movie Mm -hmm. i think uh the the movie is rushing so much to do we got to do cuban missile crisis we have uh sebastian shaw we have to introduce the young kids we have to introduce the mansion it's trying so much to do a ton of stuff and then it 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 still manages every so often to find these moments of emotion. And it's, it's with Mm -hmm. these two characters. I mean, they're the heart of the movie for sure. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's a highlight for me. That scene. Michael Fassbender is just great in whatever he does, but he really does own this role and he connects with those early scenes, you know, in Auschwitz, you know, of course we re-see the scene with the gate, you know, but then they expand on that. It's interesting that they, they, reshot that but then for the most part it's basically following the same mm-hmm. exact template as x-men yep. one i mean shot for shot it's almost exactly the same well and the the emotion of that kid and everything that happens there he carries with him you know so as he's on his kind of almost like 
James Bond type mission, which is very much right. what this film feels like is a James Bond. Oh yeah. Film. And uh, so he does a really great job, though, of uh, portraying that guy who can be charming and deadly all at the same time. Um, and, and just the pain that he carries around. Yeah. The uh, the moment in the bar with those two guys where uh, he has the oh, knife. So and good. He's kind of like, you know, my my parents were were imprisoned. They were killed by pig farmers. And uh, I can't remember what the other guy's occupation was, but it was, it's so good. Yeah, exactly. It's played to perfection. And it, it's the scenes, the, the movie kicks off and it's a little jumbled because you're jumping around a lot. But those scenes really anchor it with like strong, you know, Fassbender's strong performance really, really pulls you along in those moments where you're very compelled by that stuff versus the actual plot of the movie. And you can see in those scenes where a Magneto solo movie might have gone and what it might have looked mm-hmm. like because it's very clear that those are almost their own movie in a way. It, it, you're learning a lot about this character, but it isn't necessarily connected to the main plot. I, I think you're absolutely right. There, There is a sense where that does feel... It could feel disconnected, but I do think that Fassbender brings the intensity from those scenes into everything else he does. So he helps make it feel connected to yes. the rest. You know, and again, that's that that's what him and James McAvoy do for this film. And especially again when you bring their scenes together, they sell everything that's happened to Fassbender. You know, and so it again it brings a cohesion that I don't think would be there if you didn't have these two actors helping bring that together with their performance. So true, because some of the stuff you know, my one of my biggest complaints about this movie is you know in the first X Men I think in, in the in the montage where Professor X is taking Logan around the school and he explains how he knows Eric. He he I think he actually drops an age. He says, like, when I was 12 or 13, I met a young boy named Eric Lynchier. And you realize this movie completely <laughs> retcons that. It's like it's a reboot, but it's also a prequel because they do specifically reference X-Men 1 and characters in the X-Men franchise, like Logan, when Mystique turns into her adult self, she's mm-hmm. Rebecca Romaine. So I think uh, one of one of the great weaknesses of the film is that because everything is sped through so quickly, that relationship could have suffered. And like you're saying, mm-hmm. it's the chemistry between the two actors where if you lose that, I don't think people would have bought it as much because I I needed more, I wanted more of them together and I wanted to feel like they had gone through a lot together. To have them, they meet very quickly they are together very quickly. They're established as like, yes, we're the best of friends very quickly. But all this stuff is happening like in the span of months. And the idea mm-hmm. of Charles and Eric, their relationship has always felt like they've known each other for years. And I mean, obviously, at the point where we reach an X-Men 1, they have known each other for years. But before that, I thought they'd had like a really long, fruitful relationship. That's the biggest thing, I think, that that keeps first class away uh, from really working for me but McAvoy and Fassbender I could watch if the movie had just been the two of them playing chess I think I would have loved it regardless and and I would say that there is a they give it more depth and and so when when they're on the beach you know at the end you know and and he's he's saying um, you know uh, and he's got McTaggart you know and he's choking her and um, McAvoy's like 
you know, this is your fault. And right. he lets her go. Uh, and he's like, I want you by my side. Like, there's such raw emotion. There's such mm. this this brotherhood. And I think it's something, you know, it connects to earlier in the movie, which, you know, is that theme of not wanting to be alone. And I, I feel like Eric and Charles, they feel like mutants from another mother. Um, <laughs> and they they feel connected you know, and they feel like they could be really close. And it, it's the thing that, you know, makes Days of Future Past work so well when they're like, mm. all those years we spent fighting each other, we didn't, we shouldn't have been. You know, so um, there is that sense that they want to be on the same side, but, you know, Eric won't let go of his anger and hate. Right. And so, uh, it, you know, and, and Charles can't accept, can't accept what it is that Eric wants. It's an incredible example of a movie that that the performance is what makes it. You know, it's like uh, so many movies you see, it's like it's a combination of so many things, the writing, the direction, all that stuff. This is one movie where I'd say the writing is subpar, but because the performances are so strong, it really, mm-hmm. you like you said, you believe it. And that scene where he's like, uh, you know, we want the same thing. And Charles says, I'm sorry, we do not. You believe it and you believe mm-hmm. the weight of it. And it's so much because of them. It's an incredible thing. I honestly can't think of other movies, many other movies, where that is the case, where you really are invested strictly because of the performance. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's it, what's fascinating, you know, I can't think of another movie except for maybe like Shawshank where you have such a good chemistry between two guys, you know, yeah. like that, that, that isn't, something else you know um the only other movie i can really think of is maybe goodwill hunting uh, yeah as well you know uh, there there are a few out there but where it's just really the performances that carry you through um and get you to that point and so speaking of performances um what did you think of our new mystique uh with you know the up and coming at this point, Jennifer Lawrence. Right. This is right before the Hunger Games really kicked her off. So this is the first time I think a lot of people had actually seen her because I think she just won an art. No, she didn't win an Oscar, but she got nominated for Winner's Bone. Um, uh, I, I believe you are correct. So she that was I remember seeing her at the awards ceremonies and not knowing much about her, and then all of a sudden she's an X Men, and it was like. Oh, she's good. And then the next year, all of a sudden, it's Jennifer Lawrence, and it's she's huge. But she was. Everybody's I remember, like, I remember J-Lo, J-Lo, exactly, J-Lo. and we're all you know obsessed, and we can't get enough. But she, she's very. I mean, she's good in this movie. Um, there's there's some tough. Like I said, there's some tough stuff you've got to work with in this movie. Like the mutant and proud line still makes me wince. Um, and it's it's said as it's said as a joke early on, but when they try to turn it into something meaningful for her, it just doesn't work. But uh, I thought she was solid, and honestly, I keep forgetting she's in these movies. I it's so funny, and uh, it, it's very interesting to see her in this one specifically because. It is right before she was launched to stardom. And it feels like in Days of Future Past and Apocalypse, she's a little tuned out. In this one, she feels a little bit more invested. And I feel like maybe part of that is because she was like, uh, I'm an Oscar-winning actress now. I don't need these movies. Whereas in this film, she is still kind of a rising star. Yeah, um, I can't comment too much because I don't remember enough of... Um 
it's been a long time since I mean I remember Days of Future Past. I just don't remember her performance specifically. Yeah. Um, and then you know, uh, it's been a while since I've seen Apocalypse. Maybe. And it's hard it to out, remember so, Apocalypse, regardless. <laughs> you know, um, except for the quick silver scenes, which always are rememberable. Um, yes. But you know, here I feel like she does a great job of portraying the age that she's supposed to be. And, and I think that she does a very good job of portraying the character who isn't quite sure if she wants to be the person who will fit in or be on the outside uh, and what it is she truly wants in that, you know, which is, again, a very, you know, teenage type thing. And so yeah. I think she does a, a good job of doing that. And, you know, I think um, the scenes that maybe... Um, she doesn't quite have down yet or is probably the bedroom scene with yeah. uh Fastbender. Part of that is because uh he's I would Fassbender say the CGI, and he's so good. Well, but the CGI <laughs> work, um, so I, I'm taken out of the scene because when she keeps mm. flipping, you can really tell it's not really her in the bed. You know, yeah. like there's this mo especially when she's Rebecca Romaine and it feels like a CGI version of Rebecca Romaine instead of the actual <laughs> Rebecca Romaine. So I'm not sure if that was actually the case or not, but um yeah, it just doesn't work the way I I need it to. Um and then but the very next scene where she's challenging Charles, you know, where she's in her full form and it's the first time we really see her for who she is, you know, what she looks like. She has no, you know, um, human clothes on at this point uh, and shocks him. Uh, that scene between them is is much better. So I don't know completely what it is, but for the most part, I, I think she's good. Yeah, I wonder if part of it is, you know, speaking of the scene with Fassbender, um, when he kind of doesn't seduce her, but all of a sudden there's a romantic angle with them which you know obviously that is hinted at in brian singer's films and the trilogy as a whole but that i don't know it felt a little weird because i they never quite make it clear what age everybody is but jennifer lawrence and the rest of the kids are clearly yeah. like teenagers they're clearly like students whereas charles and eric feel like adults so the fact that he seduces her feels weird and it's not really fully established other than the scene where he's like oh you could use your full strength if you would just be in your normal form but felt a, that might be part of what threw me off about that scene is it's a little like this is creepy and also i doesn't it doesn't feel justified in, right in the context of this movie alone well and i the question i couldn't get as well was do they actually sleep together or does he just kiss her you yeah, know, I, and the, I think and it's implied think it, that they yeah, do. Yeah. And so, it's, I mean, I guess you could take it either way. So, yeah. Because then she's very like, oh, we're in love now. And it's like, you're in love? What? What? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, it's very, yeah. It's, it, it, what I think you nailed something early on. And, and it's this part where the movie's kind of rushing. So it feels yeah. like that scene there and, and that kind of build up that it needed more time. And I know this movie's about two hours and about 10 minutes long. Maybe about, you know, but I feel like you could, this movie could probably be 220. And if you could give some of this stuff more time, it would be better. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, yeah, Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence is pretty good. Uh, January Jones, uh, yeah. you know, was just hitting it big with uh, 
Mad Men and right. um, what's uh, I don't know. What's your Emma Frost take? <laughs> I January Jones looks like she needs a nap. Like <laughs> the whole time, everything she says is just like. Yes, I think that this is... And I'm like, oh my God, please. It's okay. We'll take a break between takes. Take a nap. Come back when you're ready. Um, She seems very bored this entire movie. And I remember the first time I saw it, never really noticed it. Someone later on was like, did it... Was it just me or does January Jones feel like she does not want to be in this movie? And from that point on, I've always unfortunately noticed it. But uh, Mm -hmm. she's the only... In the entire cast, she's the biggest sore spot for me where it felt like you know i haven't seen oh, yeah. mad men but i've heard great things about the show i hear great things about her performance in it this is a weird situation where almost like jennifer lawrence but jennifer lawrence at least has the charm and she handles her like you said her more emotional scenes well january jones just feels there and then feels very asleep and I just want to tell her it's okay to take a nap. You can. It's all right. I, mean, I know she's dressed like a Victoria's Secret angel, um, <laughs> but maybe she was just needing a nap. You know, I, I mean, I, maybe that's they were like, you know, she's wearing this outfit that will distract <laughs> what, sufficiently that yes, people don't and, notice and, and how and tired see, that's she the is. Thing, like they get the look right, but then and, and I feel like she fits the part physically, but then she doesn't inhabit any of the part mentally. No, no, that so kind of mischievous, very powerful. Like, yeah, she's. I mean, she's one of the most powerful telekinetics, right? And she. It, it reminds me a lot of uh, Rogue in the the trilogy. Even though I I really like Anna Paquin as that character, and I think she's good in the first two movies. It reminds me. It's very similar. Where it's like, wh- why have Rogue at all if you're not going to let her cut loose and do her thing? Um, and uh, Emma Frost feels kind of the same way. Where it's like, oh, she turns into diamonds, but. That's about it. And then and then uh, Magneto breaks her, her diamond neck and she can't do that anymore. Apparently diamonds aren't a girl's best friend. So Diamonds aren't forever. Yeah. No, they're not. Um <laughs> Yeah, see I, yeah, we don't have to talk about her anymore, but um Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Bacon's I remember when they announced that he was in this, it was like it was like, why Kevin, why are you here? Who are you? Why are you? I love I love me some Kevin Bacon. I love me some bacon just in general. Bacon is delicious. Um, but Kevin Bacon felt a little awkward in the previews. I think he's okay in the movie, but there's never a point where I, I'm watching where I'm not like, Kevin Bacon, what are you doing here? Why, what What is the... Who, who decided Kevin Bacon needed to play this role? I feel like I'm being very negative towards Kevin Bacon. Again, I stress that I do like him, but it, it felt a little weird to have him in this movie you know uh, the part that i I feel like he's actually good in the beginning of the movie i liked him at auschwitz i thought that part he played really well and then i i think the the main problem it's not so much kevin bacon i just have a problem with the character because i don't know enough about how he's manipulating everybody to understand how he gets whatever it is that he wants sure and what's what's motive? He's kind of like, oh, I want to make everybody mutants. Uh, I'll destroy. I'll put radio. I'll blow up everybody, and radiation will run rampant, and everyone will be a mutant. But like you said, there's a really good opening scene where he's kind of manipulating this kid, and he's very like 
kind of like creepy like in the way he sort of like he kills this boy's mother and then is very excited about like yes you're using your powers it there's a lot of layers to him in that scene and then as the movie goes on those layers are sort of stripped away and he becomes just kind of a like yes now there will be no one to stop us here in my evil submarine lair where it's like very clearly inspired by james bond but it just doesn't work in this context it feels very uh shallow it feels very um uh underdeveloped and there's so many scenes where he's just sitting with with uh emma frost and they're just kind of like well now that we've figured this out the next step in my evil plan is to do this and it's like all right thanks guys but uh he he feels very like you said kevin he he works in the role it feels awkward because i don't know why kevin bacon's in the movie but then the fact that they they start him off so strong and then just turn him into kind of generic supervillain number 25 yeah and I, i think you know you mentioned something that's really interesting you know they go back in this movie and they say that you know, it's the atomic age that's really leading to mutation, not just evolution, but this this atomic age. And that his plan is to basically nuke the world so that there will be more mutants and they will right. survive and they will be the dominant species then on the planet. But I feel like it's it's something that's so kind of glossed over in the film <laughs> that you 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 know, I mean, it's there. Uh, don't get me wrong. It is there. But I don't feel like they do a good enough job of trying to portray him as anything other than the, you know, the mustache twirling mutant uh, other than, you know, whereas you, you get Eric and you totally understand his point of view and why he, you know, turns against Charles at the end and why he doesn't want the same things. You know, I feel like if you had done that with Sebastian Shaw, it would have been much more beneficial to the audience to make him somebody that it's like he's the proto magneto yeah rhymes that's kind of what i mean it seems like that's kind of what they were going for to the point where he even has the helmet this is the origin of magneto's helmet is sebastian but part of me wonders and i want to know what you think of this too do you think the movie would have benefited if maybe sebastian shaw hadn't played such a prominent role and they'd focused more on eric and charles like it because it feels like as we're talking, I'm realizing it. Sebastian Shaw is just kind of a plot device. And I feel like there was a need to tie each X-Men movie in this new uh, prequel trilogy has this need to tie it into the decade it's associated with. So I think there was this driving like, oh, we need to have the Cuban Missile Crisis. We need to have that. And Sebastian Shaw is the plot device that will allow us to do that. But that it's like the one plot line too many that I think keeps this movie from having the chance to breathe like the first two X-Men movies did. They really got a chance to develop their characters, their stories. And this one feels like just 50,000 different ideas thrown in at once. And I don't know. Do you think you maybe not remove Sebastian entirely, but reduce his role a little bit so that it's more focused on Charles and Eric and somehow you make eric's storyline more organically antagonistic because when he switches at the end and he's like now i'm pure evil it felt a little like did i miss something i think what you could have done is you could have rewritten the scenes that he's in to make them more impactful so they weren't so much of him and you know january jones sitting there looking bored uh, waiting (laughs) for something to happen um 
and give him a way to not just kind of monologue what he's going to do, but kind of make it part of like, give, you know, really show, don't tell, you know, so um, find a way to show how he's manipulating these people and, and what he's got on them and how he's doing these things and why he's doing these things so that those scenes feel more important when you're watching them, I think. Yeah. Uh, and you would really help the movie um, and his character too uh, because, you know, I, 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 again, I get it's powerful when Eric says to him, you know, I agree with everything you said, yes. but you killed my mom, you right. know, and, and that's great. Um, but I would have loved to have kind of known more about the Sebastian Shaw character and, and exactly why he's come to think this, you know, um, instead of him always being the guy who's, I mean, he's literally been twirling his mustache since <laughs> Auschwitz. <laughs> right. So, and it's like, that's a long time to be twirling this mustache. What <laughs> is it that makes you tick and what is it that made you the way you are? Yeah. You know, um, I guess what I'm saying is we kind of expect more from these X-Men films to have better villains because like Stryker was a better villain in the second movie. I was going to say, the first movie has Eric as the villain. So you, you, you expect there to be more in these movies. It's a similar, it's a similar thing to Stryker. Stryker wants to, uh, to kill all the mutants, but it, it, you know, it's, very clear motivations and very organically tied into the the plot of the film. It it backs up the theme. It's all about the movie. Whereas this movie feels like a, a bunch of different movies shoved together, and Sebastian Shaw is just one of those movies. I think you're right. I think it, we know what he wants to do. We don't know why he wants to do it. Uh, he wants to dominate mutant kind because we are mutants and we will destroy humans. But that's not interesting. Um, and uh, it's a shame. But it, it, you know, part of I remember when First Class first came out, uh, really, really liking it. And I think maybe we were willing to give elements like Shaw things that we don't, we can look at now and say, ah, that doesn't really work. Maybe we were willing to give them a pass because this movie, at the very least, is competent, which was more than we could say for X-Men, The Last Stand, or Origins. So I remember part of me was like, First Class, this is amazing, this is great. And looking, you know, the more I watch it, the less I like it. But I, uh, I think a lot of what what worked about this movie was just the fact that it worked at all and wasn't terrible like those previous two movies. Yeah, um, and I think you know a, a character that I liked in the movie, which was uh, Nicholas Holt as Hank yeah. McCoy, and I was a little bit disappointed in uh, in the rewatch that I I don't feel like he got as much. I don't know. He he's a little bit shortchanged, I think, in the movie. Um, I like his character a lot. I like his interactions with Jennifer Lawrence. Their discussion, what it is that they uh, are talking about. You know, uh, this whole idea of you know, can we ever really fit in? You know, um, will we ever be accepted? Uh, all of that kind of stuff. And I think um, that's the thing that really got to me was his, you know, his struggle. I think it's a really good struggle. Yeah. And, and he so, and uh he and Mystique have a very I mean they their yes. uh storylines mirror each other. Their character arcs are very like they're both the freaks. They're kind of the ones who 
aren't going to be able to fit in. Even if mutants are accepted, they're still like he it's a really interesting argument. And I agree. I think he's shortchanged in a movie that's trying to do way too much. They throw in the now we've got to turn him into the beast, which I guess you would have to expect because people are going to go into that movie expecting him to do that. But it feels like yet another thing that it's like, did we really need that to happen in this movie? Couldn't it have waited to uh, for a sequel or something like that? Um, these are things that are kind of cleaned up in Days of Future Past, so they don't hurt as much. But I, watching him when he, I forgot, like I was like when he injects, he's like, yes, I have this thing. And it was like, oh my God, this is just a, com- a new, completely new plot that's thrown in. Like I'm going to inject myself and turn into the monster. It's been hinted at, but it just felt a little too much. And yeah, it's it's it would have been nice to just maybe focus, and it's the same problem I have with Apocalypse. I think it would have been nicer to maybe you know don't focus so much on the end of the world plot or the villain plot, but just focus on these kids, their relationships, how they're interacting with the world, how these things affect them, because that makes it personal and it gives it the emotional core it needs. And X Men One and Two did a really great job of that. And First Class has these shining beacon moments that are just so brief that you you want more of it i think that i would say the the problem with this is that it's trying to do every x-men theme in one movie yeah you know like it they took all the relevant themes from the comics and tried to do all of them in this movie and it's just too much because you know i i think one of the things that they i found really fascinating about this movie is it, it, it talking about circumstances and how the the different circumstances that, to which we're raised in can help shape who we are and so specifically with Charles and Eric you watch the different places that they are from and the the, the things that have happened to them and how they have shaped who they are so you know for Eric he has become a weapon that was forged by Sebastian Shaw and all it has done is feed his anger and his hate whereas Charles has been able to live a a relatively normal life and be able to um, find a way to maybe find his in and not his in but just everybody's in that's a mutant into the rest of society and and so it very much becomes about uh, the idea of your circumstances, how they can forge who you are, but that you, you're you not just a product of your circumstances. You have a choice to be something different. And Eric can't make that choice to be, because mm. he's kind of like Anakin. He cannot let go of the anger and hate of having his mother die. He's Anakin. Right. right. Yeah. No, that's true. I And I think... The movie would benefit if it had, I think, it had, if it had just kind of burrowed in and focused on that relationship because that is the most interesting storyline here. That is the most interesting dynamic. Like you said, these two people coming from different backgrounds, very justifiable reasons for what they do. The most interesting thing about the movie is that dynamic. These two people are still able to find a common ground but eventually have to go their separate ways despite their genuine love for each other they can't do anything about it like they they are one will always be from Auschwitz will always have that in his past and Charles will always have his kind of privileged upbringing they have to accept it's kind of heartbreaking and the movie does make that moment work but man i wish it had it had just it had honed in on that and really focused on it cuz i wanted to see that growth 
really and I wanted to feel like there was something significant being lost because while the performances are great at the end of the movie I'm like well it's not that bad you've only known this guy a few months so he's not your best friend you guys haven't really known each other that long but you know talk compare that to like if they had met each other as kids if they had known each other for years and years and years and had spent a significant chunk of their lives together the moment where they have to part ways would have been so much more effective and uh I, I I wanted that from this movie, but you know you can't always get what you want. Uh, but sometimes you get what you need. Um, it's true. So <laughs> one of the things in that though is, and I thought that this is the storyline that I really appreciated too. Is on top of their circumstances, you know, this becomes and uh, if you've seen Tomorrowland, that whole idea of what wolf will you feed, and Eric mm. continually feeds the wolf of his anger and his hate. Whereas Charles feeds um, himself what is, you know, good and pure and right, you know, and and it really goes to show that what we allow ourselves to focus on, as the wise master uh, Qui-Gon would say, your focus determines your reality. Um, And so what Eric always focuses on is the pain in his life, but he Mm -hmm. never is able to grab onto what is good. And that's what I think made that moment so powerful between him and Charles where he brings back that memory that his life hasn't been all hell. There has been some beauty in it. And and the problem is, is that Eric doesn't hold on to the beauty. And he even says, I didn't even know that was still there. And so if, if he had allowed himself to stay with Charles, Charles could have helped him find those moments again and, that he had already and then helped him create new moments, but he immediately just rejects it out of fear. And it's the same fear that he says that humans have of him. And he just keeps perpetuating that fear. And so there's this whole thing about, you know, what you feed is what's going to become reality. And Charles is the only one in the movie who is trying to change everybody's perception by showing that mutants and humans can be together, whereas humans and mutants, for the most part, seem to be saying, no, we want to fear each other, and then that means we just want to destroy each other. And so it's it's this just, it becomes this perpetual machine of, you know, fear and hate and anger, which, you know, we all know what Yoda had to say about that. Yeah, and, and Charles is also, he's he's a nurturing personality. He cares about people. He wants... The students to succeed not just for a tool that can be used on the battlefield, but he wants them to succeed because he wants them to reach their full potential so they can be the best version of themselves that they can be. And Eric never quite gets that. It's kind of played off in a jokey way, which is great with him you know, shoving Banshee off the satellite and forcing him to learn the hard way. Effective, but not like Charles kind of take on the whole thing not the not his method where he's kind of taking the time to talk with them finding their strengths encouraging them past their weaknesses and letting them find their full potential and uh it it is it is uh it's a really great story i i love i think i think that friendship that relationship is one of the most dynamic and fascinating in all of comic books and um at the very least, I'm glad they got two really talented actors to portray it in this movie. I, I, I'm very. It, it never ceases to move me. Their scenes together. Um, I think. I think it really is a, a strong point for this film. Well, and, and and what's 
kind of great about it too is that there is this whole other theme of you know you are not alone and that's what charles tells eric you know when he he's trying to get him to stop um holding on to the submarine it's okay you're not alone uh and, right and and that's what he's trying to do for everyone and, and it, what's fascinating to me is that he had done the same thing for uh for raven and yet she ends up rejecting that because he won't see her the way she wants to be seen, which is, I guess, yeah. basically to see her as sexy. Um, <laughs> um, but also, too, there's this sense for him where he hasn't completely gotten to the place where he he believes that mutants should be able to be who they are and not right. hide who they are. Yeah, it's um, a fatal flaw of yeah. his character is that his undoing is basically he can't accept Raven for who she really is. And it's his it's his biggest fault is he wants to be able to fit into society, but it's it's compromising a little bit. And Raven and Eric don't want to compromise. And I you can see you understand the attraction there and the reasoning behind why Raven would want to go with him because Charles, that's something Charles will never understand. Charles will never be able to relate to her predicament. She cannot assume a normal form and not have people freak out. So it's very interesting. I mean, and again, it, it makes Charles more complex. He's not perfect. He's flawed. And it is, it, it's his flaws that ultimately end up breaking his relationships with people. Well, and it, it's interesting, though, too, because, you know, for him, he does want to be the person that helps people see that they're not alone and that they're something bigger than themselves. And and what nobody seems to be willing to do is, like Raven or, you know, like Eric, is to stick with Charles and help him understand where they're coming from. And so I, I, I feel like that's the fatal flaw for those other characters, is that they're not willing to invest the time that, that Charles is willing to invest. Um, and... In some ways, I don't feel like they're willing to just open themselves up the way Charles yeah. is willing to either. And so by by keeping themselves in this kind of selfish bubble and making it about them, um, they miss out on that and opportunity. And in some ways, I kind of get it. You know... I it's tough to be in their position where they feel like they will always be outcasts. So I get the reasoning behind why it's like, you know what we've tried and people aren't going to accept us. So screw it. You know, it, it's just the, you know, at a certain point you lose patience at a certain point you lose hope and you're like, Hey, I tried and it's not going to work. Um, it's what makes X-Men so interesting is that they're the complexities of these characters go beyond and what makes first class so frustrating when it focuses on a plot that is so specifically like I must blow up everybody. It's the fact that none of these characters are fully right and none of them are fully wrong. They're all layered. They all have complex ideas and points of view. And it makes it so much more interesting when you have to shove all these people together to work together. So you're saying it's a mutant layer cake? I think that's exactly what I think that's what Matthew Vaughn intended. It's a that's crossover probably, between this franchise and the the layer cake franchise that unfortunately only had one movie, but maybe someday. What did you end up thinking? You know, we've talked around the whole idea of it being in the '60s and kind of playing into history. And how did that just 
I guess the production value and, and the, the decision to kind of insert mutants into something so important like the Cuban Missile Crisis? How did all that end up working for you? Well, I think it's it's a really cool idea. I think that's a lot of fun. I love seeing uh, the way you can kind of make it work in a real world environment. That's fun to me. And I, you know, the 60s vibe, very clearly Matthew Vaughn was going for kind of a James Bond, like classic Bond vibe that that does come through. Um, I I think maybe it, it, again, it's it's the fact that the film tries to do too much that maybe it's just one layer too many. Um, but I, I feel like the the vibe, the production value, the that kind of sense, it's a lot of fun. And um like I said, I would have liked to have seen more, a little less of the like big epic battles and fights and villains and a little bit more of maybe the kids like trying to find their way in the world, trying to do some stuff and then finding a way to tie it into the climax at the end on the beach. But um, it worked for me. I love I love that the the these movies are depicting different decades, even though it makes less and less sense as time goes on, because 40 years have gone by, or not 40, uh, 20 years have gone by, and Charles and Eric still look like they're in their 30s and 40s, even though they they would be well into I mean, their the 50s mutants, and 60s. They, you know, they don't age like we do. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But uh, no, I like it. I, I think it's it's a fun angle. It's a unique angle for the series that uh, we hadn't seen before. So uh, that worked yeah. for me. Yeah, I think it, um, for the most part, you know, Ma- Matthew Vaughn definitely has an affinity for the 60s, and you can see that, um, obviously, with what he tries to do later with Kingsman. Right. Is to catch yeah, the that seeds vibe. are planted in this movie yeah, for that. Yeah, and so um, I think that part really works. I do absolutely agree that the, there's just, they are trying to fit in so many things that sometimes it's, uh, it, it should have been the less is more theory. Mm-hmm. And you needed to be able to whittle down these plot elements in ways that allowed you to feel like you had more, even though you had less. And each one of those plot elements needs that. Um, and that, or you just needed to make the movie longer so you could allow those specific beats and things to be rewritten and new scenes to help fill in gaps that we've been talking about there. I absolutely think you could have done that if you just... 15 more minutes you know you could have done that with this movie right. and you really probably could have solved all the issues that we've talked about really yeah. well um, you think about the scene where all the kids are hanging out and they're showing off their powers and it's like oh this is so much fun and then literally like five minutes later they're being killed like darwin is dead you know it's like these people we just met we barely got to know and now like uh angel is betraying them oh no she's leaving but it's like you don't really feel the betrayal because it's like i don't really know you you guys have been together for about 10 you know it's like right things like that really emphasize that i feel like the focus of this film was in the wrong place it's like those Mm -hmm. relationships suffer you don't feel the pain of like oh darwin's dead because I, you've known him for about 10 minutes right. and he didn't really play a big part in what's going on. Well, and and I will say too, you know, the rest of the production, I, I do think that this movie suffers from some very uneven CGI work. It feels yeah. rushed in a lot of places and it pulls you out of the uh, a movie, at least it did to me when I was rewatching it. Um, it. I was actually kind of shocked by how bad some of it looked. Um, yeah. And it was kind of frustrating because it really does it. It when it, and the problem is this is that it it's when CGI is not consistent in a movie. 
So the moment it's not consistent, you're pulled out because you you see, your brain sees the inconsistency. If it's just consistent work, even if it's bad work, at least it helps, you know? And right. So, yeah, the, it's all over the place. I mean, some of the, like, the Kevin Bacon stuff, Shaw's power, it's a cool effect, but then when you start to see his face, it just looks very fake. But the scene where... Uh, magneto lifts the submarine out of the water that looks really great but then you compare that to like angel and banshee flying around and it's like this looks a little awkward beast's face in some shots looks very cgi um yeah i remember thinking even when i like first saw this movie and was like completely on board with it i was like eh, this looks a little cheap which is shocking considering it has such a big budget well, and, and the other thing that I found was that I didn't like Henry Jackman's score here, which was disappointing because X2 had such a great score, and I just don't yeah. feel like his kind of like rhythmic, driving, symphonic work really, it didn't fit the time period. You know, I feel like this needed to be, um, it needed to feel like James Bond, you know, and yeah. it doesn't feel like a 1960s John Barry score, basically, and that's kind of hurting the movie i think yeah and it's tough you know the movie is kind of caught between like is it a james bond movie is it an x-men movie the goofiness of bond is kind of prevalent in the the villain plot line and the cuban missile crisis stuff but x-men has always been so grounded that it just doesn't fit for me and i think the score the score doesn't bother me that much uh, i think it's fine but it definitely i i did miss ottman's uh really great theme from x-men 2 i was very happy that that came back in days of future past but uh first class to me feels like it's clashing with a bunch of different identities and ideas and it feels very solely a work of matthew vaughn's but i i don't know if necessarily all the elements mesh well in a cohesive way I think you've led us right into then, you know, um, some ratings, you know, and, and so I'm interested in all that we've talked about where we come down. So, uh, Mr. Sean Dorman, uh, I mean, Eastridge, I, which, which is your last name? <laughs> it's Dorman. Let's just say Dorman. Dorman. Yeah. Sean Dorman. Uh, uh but <laughs> where, where, where do you think, uh, that you end up rating first class? It's tough. Um, I don't dislike this movie, but I, I will say the first time I saw it, it was like a solid four-star movie, but each time I watch it, it just feels more and more, the problems become more and more prevalent, and it becomes harder and harder for me to like it. I would probably say, if we're if we're doing a five-star scale, maybe two and a half, so like right in the middle. Like, it, it's, that two and a half is really James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, that really amazing relationship and their their fantastic performances. Um, it, it's fun, you know, it's absolutely an improvement over X-Men The Last Stand and Origins, but I, the the clunky plot, the, the underdeveloped villain, the kind of, the dialogue at times is very cheesy, it, it's all over the place in terms of quality. I think that lack of consistency is what kind of makes it hard for me to really embrace it. So I would say two and a half for me, it's right on the edge of me liking it or disliking it. I would say two and a half bordering on three. Yeah, for me, I think uh, the performances is what puts this over the top, you know. So uh, if, you know, the, the issues that we've named, you know, aren't enough for me to 
dislike the movie, uh, but they also don't make it what where I used to be too at a four star movie. I, I think mm. um, for me this is really three and a half stars. It's a good movie. It could have been a great movie. I think mm. with um, some rewrites in places and, yeah. and 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 just and this is the thing I was thinking. I think this section of the uh, of the X Men franchise would have really benefited from a three arc structure, and then mm, thinking three yeah. films at a time here. So create a trilogy to where it's all in the sixties and seventies, and so each film has a beginning and end to it, but they all connect together. So you don't feel like you have to do everything in this movie. Yeah, and I think I if they had created agree. that plan, you would have you would have had a much better movie, and you would have alleviated some of the issues we had. Or, as we mentioned, you put fifteen more minutes in here, you rewrite some things, you you know you jigger around the, you know the Sebastian Shaw storyline, uh, you give uh, James McAvoy and the rest of the the mutant cast more to do together. Mm. Uh, I think it really helps because I think, you know, as great as the training scene is, it does feel kind of rushed uh, with because they're up against the clock at that point because there's a ship yep. coming, you know, yep. so they only got a week basically. And, and so, <laughs> you know, uh, you just feel like you could uh, you always want more. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But here I think it is a little bit of a detriment because you do realize that you're missing some stuff. Um, you know, you're totally right. I think I think that is. I really do feel like they probably were like, we don't know if we're going to make another one in this world, in this kind of prequel world, so let's just make this tie right into X-Men, and that really hurts the movie. And again, like I was saying, uh, Days of Future Past, you see them kind of retcon some stuff and kind of take them back a few paces, Uh, I think, as a result of the fact that they kind of tied things up a little too neatly with this movie's ending. Well, and I I do think that part of... The issues we see here is that Singer had been the sole purveyor of what was X-Men in the first two movies and made them so good, right? Right. And really, truly under had, had an understanding of the characters uh, and the world that he had created. Um, nobody else is quite able to get there. And this does a good job of setting up something really neat but then, of course, he comes back and he does kind of go back to say, we're going to do what I want to do. Uh, right. It's kind right. of what I think J.J. is going to do with, uh, you know, episode nine. We're going to yes. do what I want to do. Um, you yeah. know, so. And that's just kind of an issue that you can run into with franchise films um, and, and X-Men. I think, you know, I was thinking about this, too. And this is just kind of one last random thought, but. You know, the X-Men films, one of the things I really appreciate about the Fox is that just because a film didn't do as great as they wanted to, maybe, they never stopped pursuing what their vision was. Mm. Um, you look at the mess that um, WB has gotten themselves into, uh, Warner Brothers, by just not continuing to pursue the vision that they started off with and just believing in it. Um, you know, I, say what you will, but Fox believed in it in, in its vision and it kept going. X3, you know, you know, X-Men Last Stand makes a ton of money. X-Men Wolverine Origins makes a lot of money. You know, so they kept pursuing that vision. They make this movie. It doesn't make a gazillion dollars, but it they just keep pursuing their vision. So they mm. they 
don't stop. And I think, you know, you got, I, I give them credit for con- just continuing on to do what they think is the right thing to do. Um, right. Regardless. And, and I think that takes guts. So good on them as a studio for not just pulling the plug because one thing doesn't yeah. go their way. You know, I, first I, class I, may be a reboot, but it's also very clearly tied into the same yes. universe. Yeah. Almost yeah. like explicitly at points. It's I mean, we even get a Logan cameo in this movie. That's probably Which the best part of the movie. Yeah. yeah. But like, you know, I I agree, you know, it, it's it's kind of sad to think like, you know, Disney may be pulling x-men into its cinematic universe soon which is you know exciting but i don't the x-men is so expansive and it has such a huge cast of characters i don't need it to be tied into marvel's cinematic universe and it also takes away from this kind of identity they've established for themselves so it's with dark phoenix coming out i i hope it's good i hope it's kind of a nice little send-off for this franchise but i feel like we'll kind of lose something once if that does end up going into the cinematic universe i mean i 100 percent agree and i i i personally just look to what disney did with spider-man and think yeah they're just gonna disneyify another (laughs) you know and and that's not what i want because the one thing that fox has always had too is that it had its own identity and it wasn't afraid to have its own identity you know uh and and i think that's good i we don't need all superhero movies to be the same. We need diversity. Yes. Otherwise, it just it gets just gets boring. So, um, yeah. Anyway, um, some random thoughts there at the end, but I'm really excited. We got to talk about this one. I can't wait till a little yeah. bit later on in the year where we'll get together and talk about Days of Future Past. Oh, I'm so um, excited to watch yeah, that again. Me it's too. been too long. Um, it has been too long, and it, I remember that being one of my favorite superhero movies of all time, like on the yeah. list. Uh, it, it's it's up there. So, um, yeah, we'll be hitting that up. Um, so, you know, if you just want to go ahead and dive in and watch it, you know, go ahead, hit the Rogue cut up because that's probably the one we'll end up talking about. Um, but um, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Really want to say thank you to uh, our great associate producers here through Patreon, uh, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, and Daniel Noah. Um, I really appreciate these guys for supporting the show and the network. Uh, you know, this is a very large network and there is just too much going on. And there's no way that uh, we as the hosts can pay for this on our own. So we ask you to go to patreon.com slash FM and see how you can be part of our team and support us. We've got some great contribution levels where uh, we give even more perks back to you or honestly, every little bit helps. So again, it's patreon.com slash FM where you can be part of the Trek FM team, making sure that all of these great shows keep coming to you. Uh, Sean, great to have you back. This was so much fun to talk about. I can't wait to hear what people have to say over on Twitter and the Babel Conference. But if people want to catch up with you and yell at how wrong you were and how wrong we both were about first class, which is all Twitter is for these days, uh, where it's can true. they find you? Well, nothing would delight me more if people would come to at Yay Sean Doorman and yell at me there and you can also find me on the nerd party network on my podcast missing frames where i also will have opinions that will just infuriate the masses we uh we watch movies that we should have seen by this point in our lives but for whatever reason have never gotten around to but feel free to check that out on itunes stitcher wherever go for it 
Well, and you should because uh, some great hosts from uh, you know this network have been in there. John Mills has been on there. You know, we've had That's others. Right. So definitely check that out. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can find me over on Twitter, Matt Rushing zero two, and then I'm on Instagram under the same name. Here on the network, I also do the Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, and then I am on the Nerd Party Network with the aforementioned John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week over on Aggressive Negotiations. It is the best Star Wars podcast you may or may not be listening to, so make sure you check it out. Uh, we've got Owl Post that I'm doing with Drea Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter one chapter at a time. It's a blast. We're right in the middle of the Goblet of Fire, so it's the perfect time to catch up with us and enjoy listening as we're walking through the entire series. And last but not least, doing a show with my friend Courtney called Cinema Stories, and that is where we talk about films, but through the lens of faith. Thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back next year. <laughs>